Welcome to episode 193 of This Week in Linux, recorded live on April 9th, 2022. I'm your host, Michael Tunnell. If you're new to the show, this is a podcast that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take as a 20-year-plus Linux user. On this week's episode, we've got some distro news, some app news, gaming news, and even a little bit of drama news to cover. And this episode is also a milestone episode, not the number necessarily, but today is the fifth year anniversary of This Week in Linux. So after the stream, we're going to be having a quick celebration with the community. But for now, let's get started with your weekly source for Linux. Good news. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean, by Visuex, and by Bitwarden. Before we get started with the show today, I wanted to let you all know that today is the five-year anniversary of This Week in Linux. If you're watching live, then be sure to stick around after the show because we're going to be having a bit of fun with an ice cream social and some great Linux discussions. Also, if you would like to give me a present to celebrate five years of Twill, then be sure to like that smash button, subscribe to all the network channels, and leave a comment about the show when I publish the episode. And for those that didn't know that there are new YouTube channels for each show, there are, so be sure to subscribe to all of them. We need your help to get some features activated on some of the channels, so click that subscribe button and to celebrate the five years of Twill. You can find how to subscribe to all the different channels by going to tuxdigital.com slash subscribe. Up first in the show this week, we have Unreal Engine 5 has been officially released, and this thing is a beast for what it can do. Of course, it has a lot of benefits for the gaming industry, but interestingly enough, there are, you know, there are some examples of people using Unreal Engine 5 for movie and TV productions because it offers real-time landscapes and so much stuff. It's very impressive, and I'm very excited to play with it for myself for that reason in terms of like the movie and production stuff. I mean, I don't make movies, but... I could come up with some stuff for this. With that said, Epic Games somehow always consistently manages to make cool stuff while also being incredibly lame company. What I mean is, is Epic Games creates Unreal Engine, and Unreal Engine is pretty dope in a lot of ways. They even made the Unreal Unreal Engine 5 editor support Linux, which is awesome, and thanks a ton to them for doing that. But then they make Linux users have to compile from source because they don't provide a binary for us to use. On Windows, for example, you have to install the editor from the Epic Games Store, and since, since Epic Games Store does not exist on Linux because they continue to not bother with making a store for Linux, even though it's essentially an Electron app, you have to jump through some hoops to get the editor for Unreal 5. This is why I classify Epic Games as cool and impressive while also being super lame. But there was some really great news on Twitter because developer Ethan Lee posted uh, a tweet that shows using Unreal Engine Editor in GNOME, and it says, this is the Unreal Engine 5 editor on its first day of release running natively on Linux as a pure Wayland application with the NVIDIA binary driver. Now, there are two things to point out here about this tweet from Ethan Lee. This is running as a native Wayland client as opposed to an X client running through X Wayland, and this is awesome because of being true native Wayland support. The other thing is that I wanted to bring your attention to Ethan's work. So Ethan Lee is a developer who works on critical libraries for Linux gaming and also ports games to Linux for companies. In some ways, the Proton slash Steam Deck change of making it so games don't need porting in a lot of cases has been a little bit bad for business for Ethan, which in turn has been bad for the work he does on libraries like F-Audio and SDL and that sort of thing. So I wanted to highlight his work because 
It's very important to the Linux gaming scene, especially for the libraries he works on. And I recently found that he has GitHub sponsorships campaign set up. So he has a goal set for a monthly target on GitHub sponsors and has already got to 85% of that goal. If you want to help make Linux gaming and continue to improve, consider helping out by joining that campaign to reach his goal. I'll have a link to the show notes for Ethan Lee's campaign. And if you want to check out more about Unreal Engine, I've linked that in the show notes as well. Up next in the show is the latest release of Endeavor OS Apollo. So this latest release is powered by the uh, Linux 5.17 kernel series and also the Mesa 22 graphics stack. So there's also some really cool features that have been done in this latest release. If you're not familiar with Endeavor OS, it is a successor to Intergos. If you're not familiar with that, well, then you're probably new, and that's totally reasonable uh, to not be aware of this because it's been, it's been years since that happened. But it is an Arch-based Linux distribution, and it is a really cool, slick approach to doing an Arch-based system because they basically make it where they set up a ability for a user to install multiple DEs and an easier way to kind of onboard onto Arch without having a ton of customizations on the system. So if you want it to be fairly close to Arch, that's what Endeavor can do without having to do the whole process of Arch. Now, it is worth noting that its purpose is kind of to teach people how to use Arch, but in a more um, user-friendly barrier to entry kind of way. It's still not, you're still using Arch. So don't think that it gets, you know, it's completely replacing the Arch uh, methodology and everything. You're still having essentially the Arch experience, but you don't have to start in the same way. But Endeavor OS is really cool. And its latest release of Apollo has some new features that are uh, pretty interesting. So first of all, they have a new window manager that is being called Worm and developed by a member of the, the Endeavor OS community. And uh, this, this actually has been written uh, by Codec12. And it's a lightweight window manager used for X11 that supports floating and tiling modes. And this is to quote the project lead for Endeavor OS says that Codec 12 decided to develop this window manager to satisfy his need for a lightweight window manager that worked well with both floating and tiling modes and had window decorations with minimize, maximize, and close buttons in any layout desired, and that could run on a semi-embedded system like a Raspberry Pi Zero. So this is really interesting because I'm pretty sure it was kind of homegrown in the community for Endeavor OS because I've never heard of the Worm window manager before now. So uh, it's pretty interesting, and I, I look forward to checking it out. And also there's some improvements to the Calamari's installer. They now have Firewall D, Firewall enabled by default. There's a new command line tool that helps NVIDIA GPU users install the latest NVIDIA graphics drivers, as well as the legacy drivers for the 470 and 390 drivers. And there's also an EOS quick start tool, which is a new GUI app that where basically it allows you to choose and install the most common and helpful apps on a new installed system, which is pretty cool because it makes it quickly to kind of like, it's like a welcome tool, but more specifically for getting quick access to different uh, applications and stuff like that, which is always nice to see improvements there. If you'd like to learn more about Endeavor OS, Apollo, or just in general, I have links in the show notes. Up next in the show, we have some potential changes that might be coming to Fedora. I want to talk about a couple of them. First of all, there's a change proposal that was published this week for deprecating legacy BIOS support with Fedora 37. This deprecation will not remove the legacy BIOS support for F37 entirely, but will make it not support non-UEFI installations for new Fedora x86 installs or x86-64 installs. Eventually, the plan is to move towards removing the legacy BIOS support entirely, but not at this particular case. 
those running Fedora on legacy biosystems right now will continue to be able to upgrade to Fedora 37 packages without a fresh install just fine. So it's going to be for new installs if this goes through. There have been some reports that Fedora having phased out 32-bit x86 OS installations already results in system requirements for 2006 era hardware, so it shouldn't have much impact on you know too many users besides those that have turned off UEFI support for you know supporting a different distribution or something like that. And I disagree with this take because uh, this, in my opinion, it's not fair to say that because there are yes, 2006 Mac introduced UEFI or EFI. But Windows PCs didn't get UEFI broadly until 2012 to 2014, somewhere around there with Windows 8 and 8.1, because Windows didn't properly support UEFI until Windows 8. So my opinion about this is I think this change is inevitable, and it should be done, but right now it's just too soon. There is still hardware out there used by a lot of people that are running legacy BIOS. Whether it's because the hardware doesn't support UEFI or they switch it manually off to install a different distro that doesn't support it, I think it's just too soon. I mean, in a couple of years when Windows completely cuts off support for all versions of Windows that doesn't have this hardware support, then I could see it as an option to do it then. But for the moment, it just seems like it's, you know, too soon. Fedora is an awesome distro and the distro I use as my daily driver. And I love how innovative they are to try new things. But this seems like a misstep to me because it creates a barrier for people who might want to use Fedora but once this barrier is set in place and felt by Windows users, then maybe that's the time to do it. But to create such a barrier before Windows even does it, I don't know. It just seems like not the best option. But the next Fedora change that has been hitting the newswire this week is actually good. So Fedora 37 is set to remove some legacy Xorg drivers. That might seem bad because it seems like removing support for Xorg, but it's not exactly. They're looking at removing the legacy graphics drivers paths that are incompatible with running Waylon. A change proposal laid out this week by Red Hat's Adam Jackson is removing the VESA FB dev Xorg drivers and in turn uh, associated support code for the Xorg server that leads to using those drivers. This is part of transitioning further away from X11 and focusing on Wayland support. Now, this is eventually going to have to happen because Wayland will be the display server to be using or the display server protocol to use going forward. But in order to do that, you have to go through these kind of these processes to get rid of legacy code and that sort of stuff. Also, the fbdev slash VESA XOR drivers code isn't really maintained well or in terms of like often largely used by obsolete graphics cards that lack any hardware acceleration uh, Adam explained in the FSET 37 change proposal that both of these drivers are somewhat deprecated upstream and the code to reach them is increasingly fragile as it gets exercised less and less. This change will identify the remaining configurations that can reach these drivers, establish an alternative for display support for each configuration, and then remove the drivers and their support code in the X server. To be clear, this is not to remove Xborg again, but rather just some code that isn't really used anymore that is taking up space in the code and causing issues to deal with. This makes perfect sense to remove because it's more or less just in the way. If you'd like to learn more about either one of these uh, change proposals, I will have links in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Cloud computing can be, let's say, complex, but standing up reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure really doesn't have to be. At DigitalOcean, you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so you and your team can get back to doing what matters most, building world-changing apps that grow your business. 
You also get predictable pricing structure, robust product docs, and also services that developers just love at DigitalOcean. Get support at every stage of growth from teams of one person to teams 1,000 people with simple, powerful cloud computing at DigitalOcean. And as a listener of This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. In fact, even better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 free credit when you go to do.co slash tux2022. That's do.co slash tux2022. So again, go get started at that with that $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's awesome cloud platform by going to do.co slash tux2022. I want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux and also making it possible for us to get to the five years because DigitalOcean was the first uh, company to sponsor the show and they've been doing it for so long. It's just amazing that they're making it possible to make this show. Thanks very much again to DigitalOcean. Up next in the show, we've got some Linux Mint news, and there's a, quite a few things, but we're going to be talking about what's coming up in the next release a little bit, and then we're going to talk about a new tool that they have announced. So first of all, we have Linux Mint 21 has been dubbed Vanessa. They have a Cinnamon, XFCE, and Mate desktop environment additions planned for this release. Linux Mint 21 will be based on the next major version of Ubuntu LTS, which is the 2204 LTS Jammy Jellyfish, and it'll be using the Linux 5.15 LTS kernel. We'll go into much more detail about the release when it happens, but for now, I want to talk about something that they announced this, this week. The big Linux Mint news for this week is that they are working on a new upgrade tool. So Clem, the developer of Linux Mint, says, Upgrades towards a point release within the same major version of Linux Mint are quite simple and easy to perform. Upgrades towards the next major release, however, are much more complex. They require an advanced level of knowledge and experience, and they are performed using the command line. We are working on an upgrade tool which will make this significantly easier in the future. This is great to hear. The new Linux Mint upgrade tool promises features like a fully graphical interface, localization in various languages, the ability to perform more checks to ensure the upgrade process goes smoothly, the ability to preserve the user's choices of mirrors, as well as the ability to provide and handle various upgrade scenarios. And I think this is fantastic news because one of the things that I always had an issue with Linux Mint, there's a lot of great stuff about it, there's a lot of great ideas and concepts, and Cinnamon is a really cool desktop environment, but one of the things I always had an issue was that every two years you'd have to go through kind of a painful um, process to get an upgrade from the main the main version to the next version and it just seemed like a bit of a headache for people because every two years they would have to go through this significantly difficult upgrade system and now that they're working on improving that process i'm very happy to see that hopefully the 21 upgrade tool is not the start of it hopefully the 20.3 will start that process 221 that'd be fantastic to see but i'm really happy to see that the update upgrade tool for the major versions is being made by linux mint because it is sorely needed and i'm excited to try it out when it does come out if you'd like to learn more about this, I'll have a link to the blog post for the latest news from Linux Mint in the show notes. Up next in the show, let's talk about the Unsnap tool. This is a tool to migrate from Snap to Flatpaks. So you can quickly and easily migrate from using Snaps for applications to Flatpaks for those applications. Unsnap is really interesting because it generates the scripts itself to do the actual migration. Then it enables the user to view or edit those scripts because maybe they want to validate them or just tweak them or whatever. Now, it's worth noting that this says on the repo, in the readme file, it says, let's say it's pre-alpha, as in it kind of works on my computer. Unless you plan on contributing, it's probably not ready for you yet. Now, this is very important because this is basically an experimental project. 
So please do not recommend this or anything else that's alpha slash beta slash experimental to beginners to Linux. I've seen some people talk about it recently, like on Reddit, and recommending to people who don't want to use Snaps to use this, even though it just came out last weekend, or maybe even just less than that. You know, so please be cautious when you recommend stuff that is experimental or alpha or beta to people, especially with beginners to Linux. So... This way, the way it works is that unsnap ships with an applist.csv file that contains a mapping of snap packages names to flatpak names. This is the one-to-one mapping, so the list is not complete yet because you have to go in to make sure that it's in both, and you got to see what the different configurations of are, are both of those uh, syntaxes. Uh, but it contains a subset of applications available in the Snap Store and the FlatHub Store. So if you would like to, if you find a app that is in both the Snap Store and in the Flatpak Store, but it's not on this list, you can contribute to this list and just submit a request to add stuff to it in the GitHub repo. Now, currently, Unsnap runs a Snap Save for each Snap being migrated. This uses the SnapD internal mechanism to backup application data. So you should also make sure that you have enough disk space and also time for this operation to perform as some applications will have a lot of data to back up in this process. If you want to contribute, like I said, you can just submit stuff for the projects of the applist.csv. And there, there is a little bit of drama related to this tool. Some people might have thought to themselves, oh, snap, when they saw this, who made this tool. You see, Alan Pope, a.k.a. Popey, used to work for Canonical, the company behind Ubuntu, and Snaps. So a lot of people have been jumping to conclusions as to what it means that the person who made this used to work for the company that migrates away from these, this company, right? So, well, Alan did comment on this in the project's readme file, and I quote, The existence of Unsnap is merely a tool to enable users to switch from snapped applications to Flatpak applications. This is not intended as a commentary or slight against any software. It's just a utility. I know some people are still going to consider this more than just a utility, but there's the info directly from the developer. Do with it as you will. If you'd like to learn more about the Unsnap tool, then link in the show notes. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about some elementary OS drama. So this week, there has been some drama around the elementary OS project. This news is a bit heated, so I will not be going into details right now on this show, as we've decided to cover this topic in a little bit more depth and discussion on the next episode of Destination Linux. So join me, Jill, and Ryan tomorrow at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time to get our takes on this elementary OS news. You can do so by going to dlnlive.com tomorrow at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern, 1700 UTC, tomorrow, unless you watch it, the episode later than Sunday, April 10th at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern. You get it. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com DLN. Bitwarden is an awesome password manager that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does it do it? Well, it provides you a bunch of tools for you to be able to store all your passwords in a secured vault, auto-generate those passwords for you, and even automatically fill in those passwords on login forms so you don't have to do any of this stuff. You can access your data across many different types of devices, whether it's a web browser, mobile applications, desktop applications, or even on the command line. Plus, Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end encryption before it ever leaves your devices, so you know you're the only person with access to your data, which is super important for a password manager, right? So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And did I mention you can get started for free? Well, you can, 
But I think you want to check out their premium account because you can, for less than a dollar per month, that's right, less than a dollar per month, you can get two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time password, Priority Customer Service, Bitwarden Send, and so much more. All of this for less than a dollar per month. So make the smart move like many of the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux and helping me make This Week in Linux get to five years of production because we are now at five years. And thanks again to Bitwarden for helping me make it possible to do it. Up next in the show, let's talk about the Raspberry Pi Foundation's announcement for the updated version of their Raspberry Pi OS that happened this week. So the most fundamental change with this is updated for the Raspberry Pi OS is no longer relying on a user with a default Pi username as a security weakness of the platform. This is something that has been reported multiple times and has been discussed over the years many times with developers and, the, and members of the foundation. And they didn't really think it was that big of a deal, but now you don't have to, you don't, you don't, they're not doing it anymore. They're getting rid of it. It's fantastic. So newly flashed Raspberry Pi OS systems will now be prompted to create their own unique username rather than just having the Pi user. This is good news as the default is not an ideal setup since often people just leave it as Pi because they don't just bother to customize it and that can create security issues with everybody having the same username. Not the best option. Now, of course, different passwords, of you know, it limits that so it makes it a little more complicated but when you already have half the piece of the puzzle, it makes it easier in that sense. So it's better that it's not doing that by default. So I'm glad to see that that update. Raspberry, Raspberry Pi OS also introduces a new improved setup wizard that handles the user creation and other setup tasks. The Raspberry Pi imager also now is able to create users at flashing time to help with Raspberry Pi headless setups as well. So the other big change with this updated uh, Raspberry Pi OS build is the new experimental Wayland support. This means that Raspberry Pi OS will be able to run on Wayland rather than Xorg. Though, of course, this is purely experimental at this point, so it's not recommended by the developers to use it just yet. When I saw the Wayland support, I was kind of hoping that they would be announcing that the change away from LXDE to something else, because that would have made the Wayland support easier to implement versus trying to convert LXDE to support Wayland. But it is what it is. If you'd like to learn more about this latest news, I'll have links in the show notes. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about CentOS Hyperscale Update. So with the CentOS Hyperscale, let's talk about what's new in this latest release. So they have, there's improvements to the desktop experience for CentOS Stream 9. There's also better support for flat packs and the Hyperscale and all of CentOS Stream 9. Simple DRM change backporter from Fedora is going to be in this one as well, as well as container images and updates on the Hyperscale spins. Cloud spins images are available and are coming soon. And also there's more planned in the future. So if you'd like to learn more about CentOS Hyperscale, we've covered it on previous episodes of Twill. And I will also have links in the show notes for those who would like to learn more about CentOS Hyperscale. Up next in the show, let's talk about Firefox 99. So Mozilla has announced the latest release of Firefox this week with Firefox 99. One of the biggest items to note is Firefox 99's new support for GTK overlay scroll bars. This makes the scroll bars much smaller when displaying, but they increase in size when you interact with them, which makes it easier to use them, and they're also hidden when the user isn't scrolling. This part I like the most because it means that scroll bars will no longer be taking up space in screenshots, and I very much like that. I know that isn't really a big deal, but it is a nice bit of polish to add to the visual appearance, so I like it. Although they aren't on by default, 
you do need to make a change in the about colon config to activate them. Although the next versions of Firefox will have them on by default. So if you want to use them, you need to go in about colon config. I'll have some more details in the links in the show notes. You can also now toggle narrate in reader mode with the keyboard shortcut N, which is a nice improvement, especially for accessibility. Firefox 99 also introduces the web MIDI API for offering some level of web integration around MIDI protocol devices, such as synthesizers, musical keyboards, and other controllers. And the Linux sandbox in Firefox 99 has been strengthened in this release as processes exposed to web content no longer have access to the X window system or X11, which is fantastic. And um, would you mind if I got a little bit on a soapbox for a second? And now I don't normally do this, and especially as a Firefox fan, I usually have a lot of positive things to say about Firefox, but last time we talked about Firefox, it was Firefox 98, and there's this new downloads process, and it's annoying. So the last release of Firefox, I talked about it on the show, and they introduced this new downloads process. And at the time, it sounded nice. But after using Firefox 98 for a bit, I now have changed my mind. For me, it's annoying, and I'd even say potentially dangerous. It sounds good as it doesn't prompt you to ask where to save stuff anymore. It just assumes your download folder is where you want to put stuff. And that's fine overall, because logically it makes sense that you want to put downloads in the download folder. But there are some issues. First, it's annoying because sometimes I don't want to download something. I just want to open the file and afterwards get it removed from my system, like it used to be able to do. For example, I wanted to install a flat pack recently. What I used to do is click the Flatpak install button and it prompted me to do what to do with the flat ref file and then I tell it to open in KDE Discover and then that's it, process complete. Now though, I click the install button, it downloads to my system, I then have to open Dolphin, navigate to the downloads folder, double click the flat ref file which opens KDE Discover, then I go back to the downloads folder in Dolphin to delete that now unnecessary flat ref file that is still saved there. So, this showed me that it also seems to be harder to tell Firefox to do something specific with a file too in the file association section. So in the Firefox settings, there's this place that says, uh, choose how Firefox handles the files you download. It's typically called file associations. So this is where you can edit those and that's where they're stored and you can edit them. But since the change in Firefox 98, it doesn't seem like you can add any new associations or at least I couldn't find a way to do that. Maybe there is. Well. This was supposed to be quicker and smoother download process, and I don't... Well, okay, I will say that just pressing enter is better than having to click the dialog box and then okay every time, but there are some growing pains. So you turn if you turn off this auto-download thing, it will still ask you where to download it, so it'll prompt you, and that kind of is nice because you can just hit enter now versus what you had to use to do with the dialog box that popped up, but... I'm going to get off my soapbox about this topic right after the next piece because Firefox new download process is, well, they said that developers claim that people only download stuff intentionally, and that's not always the case. There are some websites that are awful and will activate downloads via JavaScript, typically for malware, like a PDF or something. With this new process, Firefox will just download the file. I ran into this personally, but I will say that Firefox did detect the PDF was malware and blocked the download with a notification that told me it did so. And that is great. But it still freaked me out because, well, Firefox, will they will they know every single potential malicious file that exists? Probably not. So I turned off the auto-download function, period. I hope Firefox rethinks this process going forward because, well, it's kind of a mess right now. I still love Firefox, especially the container tabs are amazing. I have a video about that feature on my channel if you want to check it out. I'll have it linked in the show notes for those who do. 
So this issue won't push me off Firefox, but it is pretty annoying. So this is kind of like a plea to the Mozilla team to fix this and improve the download process to be better than this, please. If you'd like to learn more about the latest release of Firefox 99 or Firefox in general, or check out that video about container tabs, which is awesome, link in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Visuex.com. Visuex is a brand strategy design consultancy, which means that Visuex helps brands and businesses achieve their goals and accelerate growth to convert leads into customers through design and marketing services. Visuex helps businesses gain a competitive advantage and build lasting relationships with their communities. So why would people settle for just good enough when they can contact Visuex and get visual excellence? That's right, visual excellence. As a listener of This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free with a free consultation. Plus, when you let them know you heard about Visuex from Twill, you will receive a 10% discount on your first project. So go to visuex.com slash DLN to get started. I want to thank Visuex for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, let's talk about Shotcut 22.03. So Shotcut 22.03.30 was released, adding new features, improvements, and bug fixes. For those unfamiliar, Shotcut is an open source, free, and rather powerful video editor for Linux. It's also made by the same people who make MLT, which is a framework for video editing. This latest release is powered by FFmpeg 5.0, which is an open source multimedia framework. We talked about FFmpeg 5.0 in a lot more details on episode 182 of Twill. If you'd like to learn more about that and what this means for Shotcut, then check out episode 182 of Twill. The biggest value for this latest version of Shotcut is the addition of multi-threading support for all implicit video scaling, as well as for various video filters, including blurring, uh, color grading, masking, and much more. Shotcut is a really cool application for video editing. It's it's kind of interesting in how it works because it is unique in its... Uh, it's kind of intuitive while at the same time being a unique style of video editing. So if you've never tried video editing and you want to give it a shot, I will say that it is a very cool editor, but you might have a little bit of a barrier, barrier to entry when you get to it, so just keep that in mind. But it is worth it, so check it out. Shotcut, you have to learn more about it. I have links in the show notes. Up next in the show, we're gonna talk about the latest release of LXD 5.0. So LXD is a container management system, and the latest version of 5.0 LTS has a lot of new stuff to talk about. So first of all, it's a long-term support release, which will be supported until 2027. New features of LXD 5.0 include a disk hot plug for virtual machines. It's now possible to dynamically add and remove disk devices to virtual machines, as well as USB hot plug for virtual machines. So it's now also possible to dynamically add and remove USB devices to virtual machines. They also added new OVN chassis cluster member role, as well as optimized refresh of storage volumes and much more. If you'd like to learn more about this particular release of LXD or LXD in general, link in the show notes. Up next in the show is the latest release of ClauseMail 4.1.0. So for those who are not familiar, ClauseMail is an email client that is really, really, really fast, although I wouldn't classify it as a modern client. So there's new features in this release include text zooming in the message view, improvements to a number of preferences, a keyboard warner plugin to give a warning before sending a message containing any user-defined keyword so you get to control what it warns you about, and also many other features are in this release. I used to use ClauseMail back in the day, and I will say that it is very, very fast. It's not something you would classify as a modern email client, like I said, but if you are looking for a GUI email client that 
is crazy fast and modern visuals aren't that important to you, then check out Clawsmail. If you want to learn more about the latest release of Clawsmail 4.1.0, I'll have links in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the channel and the show, we have multiple ways to contribute via Patreon, sponsors, and others. You can become a patron by going to tuxdigital.com contribute to learn more. And if you do become a patron, you can join me during the live stream in the recording stadium to discuss stuff between topics and just hang out every week after the show in the patron-only post-show. And also, if you were here during the live stream, you can become a patron and join me and hang out for the ice cream social and the celebration of five years of Twill. And you can also support the show by ordering the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt or the Linux is the This Week in Linux t-shirt from dlnstore.com. Plus, while you're there, check out all the other great stuff, hats, mugs, hoodies, stickers, and more at the DLN store. I didn't say t-shirt again. I'm getting good at this. If you'd like to some more podcast goodness from me, then check out the latest episodes of Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts, as I'm a co-host of both of those shows on the network. And just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time or 1700 UTC. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux canoes each and every week by going to dealinlive.com. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tanell with the Destination Linux Network, and I'll see you next week for another episode of your weekly source for Linux good news. Hyperscape.